Well, if you could turn with me to uh, Matthew 22, Matthew chapter 22, and we're continuing our study in uh, the book of Matthew, and um, we're going to read from verse 23 down to 33, and uh, before we do, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer once again, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your words, Uh, we pray that you come And illuminate the word for us. Come by your spirits. Make it clear to us. Help us to see the issues at stake. And help us to respond rightly uh, to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you remember that uh, this is part of an ongoing debate, if you like, a discussion between Jesus, uh, some priests, some Pharisees, and now we come across some Sadducees. We'll explain what those are in a minute, but let's read. The same day, Sadducees came to him, uh, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? And they all, for they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, They were astonished at his teaching. Well, a couple of weeks ago we we rejoiced at the the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, Easter Sunday. And, you know, you read through the book of Acts, uh, the book that narrates the the history after after the Gospels, after Jesus. And uh, you see that a dominant part of the preaching of the apostles and the church was the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as, long, as well as the cross. Um, that, uh, indeed, the, the knowledge that the Savior had died, was buried, and had risen again from the dead is something that propelled the church out into the world with this message of good news. And it changed the world. You know, within three centuries, the Roman world would be a Christian world, at least nominally. And this gospel, it, you see, it holds out hope. Indeed, the kind of hope that is certainty that by believing in Jesus Christ, all our sins would be forgiven because Jesus paid for them on the cross, and eternal life would be ours, including. The resurrection of our bodies at the end of this age. 
that though we may go into the ground at at some point, all of us will, unless Christ returns first, we will then be raised to life. The resurrection, therefore, is central to the Christian faith. And it is, I should say, Christians, everyone will be raised. John chapter 5, Jesus tells us that. But Christians will be raised to life. Non-Christians, sadly, to condemnation. Now, of course, the idea of resurrection has, has always been scoffed at by the world. There's always been people who are willing to scoff at the idea and diminish the importance of the resurrection. Uh, for example, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Professor Alice Roberts, who you may know as a, a TV personality, a broadcaster scientist, she is Professor of Public Engagement in Science at Birmingham University. She's also the President of the Humanists UK organization. And uh, in Easter 2021, uh, she, she tweeted this. Just a little reminder today, dead people don't come back to life. And it was uh, liked by 10,500 people. Uh, and it was uh, reposted, retweeted, quoted by 4,500 people. Many of them just a couple of weeks ago. Dead, just a little reminder today, dead people don't come back to life. So there's always been scoffers, if you like, people who laugh at the idea that people can come back to life. And perhaps we can understand it. If you are someone who is committed to uh, the scientific method, which rests on a materialistic philosophy... Now, I've been in science. I know a little bit about that. Uh, One of your other elders is also a current scientist. He knows about that too. And uh, he understands, we understand the the philosophical underpinnings of the scientific movement, the scientific method. But it's it's a limited method. And you can understand that if you only put, put all your eggs in that basket of the scientific method, you're not going to believe that people come from the dead unless you see it yourself with your own eyes. So we can understand it. But that thinking has been around for centuries. And certainly in the last century, if not more, a century and a half perhaps, it has crept into the Christian church. Dead people don't live. And people are skeptical of the existence of a God who intervenes in supernatural ways to raise people to life. First of all, Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the age, us as Christians. Even Christians and professing Christians in churches struggle to believe that. As J.C. Ryle says, in writing in the 19th century... He said, skepticism is an ancient thing. Well, in our passage today, we see some religious skeptics. uh, People who do not believe that there there is a resurrection. They're called the Sadducees. And because they don't believe in a resurrection, that's why they're Sadducee. The old jokes are the best. There we go. 
You're looking out for it, Evan. <laughs> but it's, <clears throat> there is a sadness. It is true, though. There is a sadness about not believing in the resurrection. It has all sorts of implications in practical life. What we need to remember here, of course, is that when the Sadducees come to talk to Jesus, it's part of a pattern of behavior to try and trap Jesus in his words. To get him to say something incriminating to justify both arresting Jesus and trashing his name with the crowds. And these men are next in line with a question of their own for Jesus. And they think they have got the gotcha question. I don't know if you've ever done any kind of evangelism or you've talked to people about the Christian faith and they come at you with a question and they think it's a gotcha question. Ha ha ha. I'll ask you this question. You can't answer it. And it's usually a facile, stupid, infantile question. Sometimes they're serious ones. But, you know, often it's just a silly question. But they have their own gotcha question. But what we'll see is, is that Jesus is not taken in by their hypocrisy, but rather opens up the question of what resurrection life looks like, and in doing so, highlights how these religious people don't actually understand the scriptures at all, or the power of God. And that will provide for us lessons for our own souls as we think about it today. So first of all, let's think about the question that is brought. They bring a question to Jesus. So they're called Sadducees. They're not really called Sadducees because they're sad. But, you know, um, they are, uh, they're not the same as the Pharisees nor the Herodians, which we just met earlier. The Herodians... Uh, Let me remind you, we're not religious people, but supporters of the dynasty of Herod. Herod the Great, who is the king at the time of Jesus' birth. And so they are political elites concerned about politics. The Pharisees were a a religious people with a political slant to them, if you like. And they were people who believed in Moses... The words of Moses and the words of the prophets. In fact, the whole Old Testament. At least they said they did. And one of the key features of that belief is that they believed in a general resurrection at the end of the age. That comes out of the Old Testament scriptures. Now the Sadducees only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. The books of Moses. So they didn't consider the Psalms or the wisdom books or the prophetic writings as God's works. They saw them as kind of corruptions coming perhaps from the East. You know, kind of weird stuff from the East. Let's stick with Moses, they say. Let's just pay attention to him. And the upshot of this is that they didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They are what is called annihilationists they believe that there is nothing after death Uh, to quote Josephus uh, a Roman Jewish historian of the first century he says the Sadducees hold that the soul perishes along with the body That's that's a modern view isn't it if there is a soul 
then it dies with the body. If you die, then that's it. You become fertilizer. So many people believe that. So that's the Sadducees. Now they come to Jesus with this uh, quite complicated scenario, which I just need to kind of tease out for you a little bit. And it starts with verse 24. He says, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. So you get the idea. Man married to a woman. Man dies. Brother gets drafted in to marry the wife and have children on the dead brother's behalf. And that's what's called leveret marriage. It's uh, it's part of the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, 5-6. And the idea of it is to preserve the name of the dead brother and the legacy of the dead brother. And that's actually an ancient custom that goes before Moses. Uh, Actually, you see it, for example, in Genesis 38.8, where Judah... uh, enters into a kind of leveret marriage. Uh, Judah, the son, son of Jacob, one of the sons of Jacob. And also if you read the book of Ruth, which is after Moses, uh, Boaz taking Ruth as his wife uh, is, a, is a, a fulfillment of that leveret marriage principle. That he is marrying for the sake of the dead husband of Ruth. So verse 24 shows us this principle of leveret marriage that is in the law of Moses. Uh, Although commentators say that in practice in the first century it didn't happen as much as maybe uh, some would have liked. So they present this hypothetical scenario of leveret marriage. Suppose the brother dies and then the next brother dies. And then the next brother dies. And in all of this, there are no children produced. But the woman has had seven husbands in life. And then she dies. And then comes the crunch question for Jesus. They say, in the resurrection. Now, of course, they don't believe the resurrection. But they're assuming it for the sake of argument. In the resurrection brackets, which we don't believe in. Of the seven, whose wife will she be? It's kind of a gotcha question. (laughs) Uh, Because that introduces an unacceptable marriage situation. How can a woman have seven husbands? It's polygamy. It's against the law of God. And that's horrific. So what are the Sadducees doing here? They are, well, they're implying a form of arguments... It's got a Latin name called reductio ad absurdum. If you make certain assumptions and then you work through to the consequences and you come up with something that looks absurd, then there must be something wrong with your initial assumptions. What is the assumption that the Sadducees are making for for the sake of argument? They're saying if there's a resurrection. So let's assume there's a resurrection for the sake of argument. Work it through. We've got this horrific situation at the end of a woman with seven husbands living. That can't be right. Therefore, they they conclude there can't be a resurrection. That's how they think. But of course, 
There may be other false beliefs at play that they have not accounted for and not tested. And that is what now Jesus addresses. And there are three elements of their belief that Jesus points a finger at. That is a problem for them. First of all, they are, the overarching statement, they're wrong. <laughs> that in itself is not a great way to argue. <laughs> Just go around and say, no, you're wrong. And walk away. That doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> um, but he starts off saying, look, you're wrong. But here's why. First of all, they're wrong because they don't know their Bibles. That's what Jesus says in verse 29. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. We'll come to the power of God in a moment. Now remember these Sadducees are devoted to the first five books of Moses, of the Bible. They know them well. They can probably quote verses from them, whole passages from them. They could probably just rattle it off and tell you what the word says without having to look it up. They know it well. But here's the the genius of Jesus. He does not point to a part of the Old Testament they do not accept as scripture. Jesus could point to the prophets. But then the Sadducees could say, but we don't believe the prophets. Jesus points to something in Moses. He actually points to a verse that they will know well, which is very, very much at the core of the books of Moses. Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. Where Moses meets God in the burning bush. And sets aside Moses to lead from there. To lead the Exodus. That fundamental story of the people of Israel. And when, he, when God speaks amongst other things. He says... I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now Jesus' point here is, as Jesus quotes that verse, is that these men, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, were dead by the time Moses came along. But But God doesn't say, I was the God of these dead people. He says, I am the God of these people. Implication. They are living people today. It would be pretty pretty silly, I think, if, if the Lord were to say, I am the God of people who have perished and do not exist anymore. What point? What is the point of that? These are men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are men who received covenant promises with the fulfillment of those promises far beyond their own lifetime. But it would be pretty poor of God if in spite of their faith, these men could not see and rest upon the future fulfillment of those promises. No, God is not God of the dead. He is God of the living. 
And Jesus uses this kind of argument elsewhere. You may remember that it's in John chapter 8 when Jesus is talking to some Jewish leaders. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. That Abraham anticipated living in the day when Christ would come. That there would be a future existence for Abraham beyond his death. And so you see the the root problem for the Sadducees is they do not know the scriptures. Now as I said, they may have been able to quote verses and do it accurately. They may be able to speak of passages they have learned from childhood. But they didn't know the scriptures. They memorized them and had them at hand, but they didn't know them. They did not think deeply enough about the implications of the things they were reading. And meditate on them. Now friends, the most problems that Christians have in understanding and in believing or in how they live are right here in this issue. They may well know the verses. You know, as a young Christian, I was uh, encouraged in the fellowship group I was part of. As a new Christian, learn Bible verses. And many of them have uh, uh, been useful for me throughout my life. But it's one thing to learn a verse or two. Or even the 60 in the memory system that uh, the, the fellowship group had. It's quite another thing to know what the scripture is actually saying. And the problems that Christians have today in believing, in knowing the scripture, in interpreting the scriptures or living the Christian life are to do with them not actually knowing the scriptures that they, and not understanding the scriptures that they claim they know. Knowing scriptures, the scriptures, it means not simply being able to quote them and know the chapter and verse. It means knowing the implications of them. So let me, I don't often do this, but let me just quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 1, uh, paragraph 6. The chapter 1 is all about how we view the scriptures. And I encourage you to read it. It is good for your soul to read these things. Chapter 1, paragraph 6 says, I haven't memorized it, so I'm reading it. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Now, I think everybody is happy with the idea that everything we need for life, salvation, faith, life, is expressly set down in Scripture. The step that people often don't make easily, what about the good and necessary consequence? What about the implications of Scripture? Now let me give you an obvious example of that, where you need to base your belief on the good and necessary consequence, the doctrine of the Trinity. 
I challenge you to find me a verse that accurately and fully defines the doctrine of the Trinity. You won't find one. Does that mean the Trinity doesn't exist? No, it doesn't. If you take a number of considerations together, a number of verses, some different statements all across the scripture, and you put them all together, then it emerges. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. You you read scripture, and you see Trinity everywhere. You don't see the words, you see the thing. (laughs) You see it everywhere. And that comes about because of good and necessary consequence. Thinking deeply about the implications of the scriptures. And most Christians don't do the work. And therefore live in uncertainty, doubt, misbelief, even false living as a result. So they don't know the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, we need to know the scriptures. You need to give yourself to the study of the scriptures. There are many reasons why people may not know the scriptures. Uh, You may be a new Christian. All right. You haven't had time yet. You need time to get to know the scriptures. So make sure you're reading it regularly. And you're reading the whole Bible. Not just your favorite devotional bits. All of it. Try and make sense of all of it. Now it'll take you years. But keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. One of the pictures I, I, I use to, that helps me is, you know, you know, those jigsaw pieces, you know, thousands of pieces, and you know, you're trying to put the bits together, and for a long time it just doesn't make any sense. But you keep plugging away at it, and the picture emerges. Keep doing it. You may be a lazy Christian. There are some people who just seem to give up and just go with the flow of life and don't bother anymore. That's a dangerous place to be. Some may be, not be Christians at all. And therefore there is a blindness that they cannot see even though they may read the Bible. They, and what they lack is the, the Holy Spirit given eyes. And spirit worked faith to see what is written in front of them and the implications of it. So they they were wrong because they didn't know the scripture. Secondly, they were wrong because they don't know the power of God. See, in the end, the Sadducees have a God who is small. Who doesn't have the power to change the world in which we live. A world that is corrupted by sin and is broken. And they have a God who doesn't get involved. And I think it's true to say that Sadducees were quite pessimistic. Not because they're sad, but because you know, they're pessimistic about the future. You know, in the end it's going, to, it's going to come to an end. And they're going to die and there's going to be nothing after that. So, so what do you do when you, you have that basic attitude of if there's nothing beyond your death? What do you do? Well, you live for now. You don't think about things that don't involve you. And your life becomes wholly self-centered and focused on the here and now. So these Sadducees, they, 
they don't believe God will change the whole of creation through resurrection. They don't believe in the renewal of creation. And so they live for now. Friends, that's a, a problem with our Western Christianity. And dare I say it, even amongst our charismatic and Pentecostal friends, and they are friends, but dare I say it, their God is small. Just as our God can be small. Why? Because they often are praying about the little things of this life. Things that we need help with right now. Not thinking about the great eschatological glory that is to come. So a couple of weeks ago, um, a colleague of mine in the in EPCW, our church, uh, posted a link to an article in a website called religionnews.com. And I don't, it's not one I usually read, but uh, he, he linked to it, so I, I read it. And the title of the article was, There's a reason every hit worship song sounds the same. And he analyzes why is it that every hit worship song sounds the same. And the conclusion is that all the hit worship songs that are popular in churches today, particularly in the United States, are produced by a handful of mega church worship bands. A handful, small number of mega church worship bands. There's a lot we could say about that, but I won't. I could have a field day on that sort of thing. But one of the things that an academic quoted in the article said was, talking about the content of these hit worship songs, is a lot of it is what's God doing for me now? What is God doing for me now? Let's sing about that. What can God do for me right now? There's a focus on that personal experience. Little focus beyond ourselves. Little focus on the cross. Little focus on the resurrection of Christ. Little focus on the glory of God. And the majesty of God. Except in the most infantile terms. And friends, that's a sign of a small God. You may have great music. I don't have a problem with great music. But you can have a small God with great music. These Sadducees had a small God. They did not believe in the power of God. But finally, they are wrong because they do not understand resurrection life. The Old Testament implies, implies a resurrection. And God has the power to bring it about. But the question then arises, if there is resurrection, what's it like? And see, one of the assumptions that the Sadducees were making while accepting resurrection for the sake of argument is that it would be more of the same. Okay, you die, you rise again, and it's back to normal, as before. And hence the unacceptability of having seven husbands in this new resurrection life. But there's something else that these Sadducees have not thought of. Because they're so wedded to this world. 
One is a principle that comes out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is speaking to a woman who has lost her husband. And a woman has lost her husband is free to marry again. Now, why is that possible? Because at death, marriages end. Marriages come to an end. That's why you can go ahead and get married again. You know, if, if the marriage still existed, even though your husband or wife is dead, you couldn't get married again. But death ends the marriage. And so the resurrection, you see, which comes necessarily after death, it changes everything. There's no need for all marriages have come to an end. And there's no need for marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. That doesn't mean to say you'll be separated from the one you have loved all your life. You, you know, if, if your beloved is a believer, you will meet them again. You'll be friends forever in the heaven and before the glory of God. But there's no need for marriage. Now, there's a great deal of mystery about what heaven is like when you die as a Christian. And there are some people who get the wrong idea of it. I once had a, so we had a, a lady in this church who was in her 90s. She, she died a few years ago. And uh, for the last, she was only a member of our church for the last two or three years. And uh, prior to that, she had been in another church for decades uh, with terrible teaching. And she was pretty unclear about what heaven was going to be like. And I've no, I've no doubt in my mind that she was a true believer. She was just mixed up in some of her doctrine. But she thought when she died, she would have this ghostly ex- existence. You know, she'd float off into the sky. And maybe it might be a harp involved. There might be some robes. She, she, she said, I wonder if there's a lot of ironing in heaven because of the robes, <laughs> you know, the floaty robes. But she had this idea that you're just kind of somewhere up there in the clouds floating around. And, uh, and when I told her, well, actually Christians, and Christians have always believed that there is a resurrection body. In you know, Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. You know, Christians believe this. And she was absolutely horrified. <laughs> because her first thought was, Does that mean I'm going to stay in this 90-year-old body for eternity? Which is such a burden to me. She was struggling to walk and everything was hurting and all sorts. Well, I think I was able to show her. I'm not sure how much of it went in, but I think I was able to show her from 1 Corinthians 15 that new bodies will have certain features which are marvelous. These new bodies will be imperishable. They'll be powerful. They'll be spiritual. Perfect for the restored and renewed creation. They will be physical bodies. Free of the sufferings of disease and age and injuries. But spiritual bodies empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we will retain our individuality. We will know who we are. And other people will know who we are if they've known us before. We will be recognizable. 
And we will recognize our brothers and sisters. And what will we do after the resurrection? Well again, there's a lot of mystery about that. We're not told everything. But we're told some things. One is that we'll be in the presence of God and of the Lamb. Forever. And so we will worship. So worship is the thing that we will do. This is what we are being prepared for. Worship, that's why we meet on Sundays. It's a taste, an eschatolo- a taste of eschatological reality. I'm always using that big word. One day I'll explain it again. There's a, there's a glory about meeting together. That's why I encourage you to come. Come again in the evening. I'm on my hobby horse. But we will worship. We will also rest. How do I know that? You read the book of Hebrews, chapter 3 and 4. We're just coming into it in our midweek Bible study. And it draws attention to the rest that God enjoyed on the seventh day. And what the writer to the Hebrews says, that is the rest that is waiting for you. At the end. The catapousis. Not the Sabbath, the catapousis. He's waiting for you. And that's where we're heading. And therefore the church today is a a wilderness people that is traveling ready to get to that glory by the grace of God. But then we will rest. And the suffering and struggles of this life will be done. And we'll be full of joy in the midst of it. And there will be certain kinds of work. So that's not contradicting. Rest and work are not contradictory. They're mutually enforcing. There are certain kinds of work that are going to be involved. The work of rule. We're going to rule with Jesus over the new creation. But it's interesting to think about, isn't it? There's going to be certain kinds of jobs that won't be necessary. You won't need soldiers. You won't need surgeons. You won't need prison guards. You won't need ambulance drivers. Insurance salesmen. You won't need any of those kind of things. Because everything's secure. And so on. You can go on. You know, put all that together. I think this is what Jesus means by you will be like angels. Free of sin. Free to serve God as he commands. Free to enjoy him forever. Isn't that a glorious thing? The resurrection. Let's get it central in terms of thinking. About our belief about our living, the resurrection in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious picture that the Bible paints for us, uh, however sketchily, of the glory to come. We pray that everybody here today would enter into it, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust him forever, that though they die, yet they shall live and enjoy God forever. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.